0: Welcome to the weekly podcast for City Chapel at Slaughter Creek, the world's okayest church right here in Austin. Get to know us better at citychapelchurch.com. We're so glad that you joined us today and hope you enjoy the message. I'm gonna continue a sermon series that we started a few weeks ago uh, called Songs from the Cave. Um, we've been looking at uh, really The kind of beautiful things that God brings out of us through difficult times, uh, through cave seasons, Uh, through loneliness was the first week. We talked about loneliness in in week number one, and um, we talked about sort of where some of that originates, where that comes from. Um, But also we talked about God's antidote to loneliness, what God, that Jesus is our refuge that the name of the Lord is a strong tower, the righteous can run into that place and be safe. Even when you have no other refuge, when you have no one else who cares for you, Um, Jesus Christ cares for you, God cares for you, and he is a refuge for us, and he is a comforter, and he will come and wrap around you, and he will cover you, and he will insulate you, where he won't necessarily change the temperature of the room or the environment that you're in, he will change the temperature of your heart, That's what insulation does. It doesn't, it's not a thermostat. It doesn't change the circumstances or the situation or the family that you came from or the divorce that you went through or the difficulty that you're facing, but it does cover you. And it does provide healing, and it provides safety, and it provides wholeness for you. And that's and that's our hope, that you would experience the Holy Spirit. The friendship with the Holy Spirit is the comforter. It's the thing that wraps around us and allows us to get through difficult times and walk through these times. Um, but not only that, last week we talked about complaining. And um, contrary to almost every other sermon you've ever heard, I encourage complaining. Uh, we encourage complaining. The Bible, uh, as, as, as we're going to read here in a minute, David said, "I poured out my complaint to the Lord." So, who you complain to is important. Uh, you you ought to. I think what I said last week was you ought to pour it uh, before the Lord. Because if you don't pour it before the Lord, you will you will you will drip it out to other people. Um, you 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 will drip it. So so you need to pour it. Don't post it. Right. <laughs> this is this is the key. The key is to pour it before the Lord. Turn someone next and tell them, don't 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 post it. Don't post it. Just, honey, just, babe, just don't. Just don't. Don't post it. You gotta, you gotta pour, you gotta pour before the Lord. Too many, there's too many people posting their complaints, getting sympathy and advice, none of which is very helpful, when really what they need is God. They need true comfort, and that only comes from God. That only comes from, when we pour our complaints, so the, 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 the ground of our cave ought to be soaked with our complaints ought to be soaked with it. And you have a God who is ready and willing to listen to your complaint, who knows what you have need of before you even ask him. He's not surprised or shocked. He's not looking down on you for your complaints. He wants you to bring your complaints to him. And so this is what this is what I want to challenge you this week. I, I hope you were pouring out complaints to God. I hope you were just, prayer times were full with just dumping on God those cares that you have and the injustices in your life. You have to have a way to release that. You can't keep it bottled up, dear Texans. You can't keep it bottled up, dear religious people. You can't pretend like everything's okay all the time. You're not always too anointed to be disappointed. You're not too blessed to be stressed. Nobody's too blessed to be stressed. Anybody who has kids is not too ble- I don't care how blessed you are you are not too blessed to be stressed. That's, that's impossible. Stress will find you no matter how much blessings you have or how grateful you should be. You will have complaints and you have to be able to pour this out to the Lord. Because if you don't, you'll bottle it up and you'll spill it out to other people and you'll, you'll, you'll pour it out to other people who can't handle it. They can't, they can't handle the complaints because they haven't even figured out a way to deal with their own. And so I hope and pray this week, you deal with those complaints, you pour those out before the Lord. And now today, I want to go a step further, and I, I don't really, I, I don't I don't really know if anyone's ever thought of what I'm going to preach, if, if any of you have thought about what I'm going to preach about today, but but honestly, it's so important. Before I do, let's jump into Psalm 142. This is our key Psalm for, for this month, the month of Thanksgiving. We are talking about being in a cave. Um, Psalm 142, uh, go ahead and put it on the screen, verse one, uh, actually, before, Verse one, it says that this is a maskill of David, which is a didactic poem or a teaching poem. This is supposed to be instructive for us. This is a maskill of David when he was in the cave, and it is a prayer. So David says, I cry aloud to the Lord. I lift up my voice to the Lord for mercy. I pour out before him my complaint. Before him, I tell my trouble. Uh, that's the end of verse 2. Go on to verse 3. That's what we talked about last week. When my spirit grows faint within me, it is you who watch over my way. In the path where I walk, this is what I'm going to talk about today. In the path where I walk, people have hidden a snare for me. have hidden a snare for me. I'm going to talk about hidden traps or secret snares he have hidden a snare for me go on to uh, the next verse though I look and see he says he's talking to God look and see there's no one at my right hand no one is concerned for me I have no refuge no one cares for my life verse five is the vulcrum of the verse he says so I will cry to you Lord I say to you you are my refuge my portion in the land of the living Listen to my cry, for I am in desperate need. Rescue me from those who pursue me, for they are too strong for me. That goes back to those people that are laying a snare for him. So he says, set me free from my prison, that I may praise your name. Then the righteous will gather about me because of your goodness to me. Let's go to 1 Samuel um, chapter 24 as well. This is A passage of David in a cave. I don't know if you, um, in your Bible, if there's a little note uh, uh, at the bottom of it. But um, in my Bible, at the beginning, it says that this is a song of David when he was in a cave. And there's two little notes at the bottom of my Bible. One linking um, this cave experience. Um, to 1st Samuel chapter 22 which we talked about last week when he's in the cave of Adullam but the other one links it to this one 1st Samuel 24 where he's in another cave now to, to be truthful nobody really knows exactly which cave experience David's talking about we know he probably spent a deal a good deal amount of time in several caves and multiple times throughout his life but these are the two like most highly noted cave experiences of David last week when he was in the cave of Adullam, and his parents came to him and all of the losers gathered around him 400 guys came to him who were in debt (laughs) who were in distress But now he's in another cave in Psalm 20, uh, Samuel 24. After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, Saul was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all of Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there and Saul went in to relieve himself. I don't know, it, it, sometimes you, you don't need a lot of uh, do, uh, commentary on scripture. And David and his men were far back in the cave. So, 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 so get this, Saul is pursuing David. And Saul goes into a cave to relieve himself. And it's the cave that David and his men are hiding in. And, and David and his men were far back in the cave. And the men said, Holy crap! Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> just going back to that last verse. I just say, I can't, you can't leave it alone. Well, I know, in my head, I was going back. It's all good, it's all good. We don't have to. So, went in to relieve him. All right, David. <laughs> the men said, <laughs> They didn't actually say that. Uh, the men said, This is the day that the Lord spoke of when he said to you, he said, I'll give you your enemy. That's a key word right there. I will give you your enemy into your hands for you to do with as you wish. And then David crept up unnoticed behind Saul and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. That word Corner uh, is, is a Hebrew word that actually means uh, the, the, the end of the robe. So it's not the corner as we would think of a corner. It's, it's, the, it's the hem, the hem of his garment. He, he cut off the hem of his robe. And afterward, though, it says David was conscience-stricken. He felt guilty. He was conscience-stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe or for having cut off the the hem of his robe. So he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, not my enemy, my master, the Lord's anointed or lay my hand on him for he is the anointed of the Lord. With these words, David was basically rebuking his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul. And there's this long dialogue, which I've cut short a little bit. But he says, my, my lord, the king. Saul turned around, looked behind him. David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Verse 11, he said, see my father. It's so, so interesting. Because Saul's not really his dad. This isn't, you know, Luke and Skywalker and, and Darth Vader. He's not actually his dad. But he had a father relationship, father-son relationship with him. He was his mentor. And so he 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 kneels before him face down and he says, see, my father, look at this piece of robe in my hand. I cut off the hem of your robe, but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. Skipping on down, verse 16, it says, when David finished saying this, Saul asked, is that your voice, David, my son? So you see the intimate relationship that they have together. And he wept aloud. He said, you are more righteous than I. Going on down to verse 19, it says, when uh, uh, Saul is saying, he says, when a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I want to talk to you today, I feel like the Lord is laying on my heart to, to speak to you today about hidden traps or, or secret snares. That there are um, snares in our lives, snares in our paths, and that we see these snares, they come out in different seasons and times in our lives. And, and so, so I want to talk to you about these, these hidden traps. And I also want to talk to you about this story, from the story. If we go back to Psalm 142, um, verse 3, where David says um, that, he says, I was, uh, uh, he said, he said look, at, look at my way, examine my way, Lord. You watch over it, but in the path. Like God's watching this and he says you know that in the path where I walk people not enemies but people have laid a snare for me. So who are these people that are laying a snare for David? Well, it is people who go before you on the path. They've hidden a snare. And so what I want to talk to you about today is these these snares, these traps that are hidden on our path. And maybe, maybe you've experienced it before. You know that you're in a snare or you're in a trap when you feel stuck. It's highly deep preaching here. This is the, we, we dig into the Greek and the Hebrew and just eschatology and all kinds of stuff. Really, really deep. But you know you're in a snare or you're in a trap when you get stuck. And many times uh, we, we, we walk through life and we're living life and then something catches us and we become stuck. In many, many, many ways to be in a cave is to be stuck. For many of us who are in cave seasons, we're in a season of a cave in our own lives, we would describe it in a way such as I feel stuck or I feel like I'm not moving forward or I feel like I'm not able to move forward. I feel like I'm trying to do what I ought to do. I feel like I'm trying. I feel like, see, being stuck has nothing to do with what you want, has nothing to do with your heart. Has everything to do with your feats. So you may desire to move forward. You may want to change. You may want to go to the next level. You may want to obey God. You may want to have a family that seeks God. You may you may want to go to church when it's cold outside. And congratulations, you all did. Um, and those of you watching online, you might feel stuck in your couch today. I'm tired. I just feel I feel I need to stretch my hands this way. Those stuck in their beds this morning. Let's say <laughs> No, some people are sick, and then we have folks from Michigan watching online, probably not in your bed. But but for those that hey, if the shoe fits, you know, go ahead and be convicted. That's that sounds good to me. But we we, we get we get we get stuck. You may want something different. You may desire something, you may see something, but you're not able to move toward that thing, that's when you're stuck. And this is this is what happens though. We don't see the trap. We don't see it for what it is. It's a hidden trap. There's so many hidden traps along our path that trip us up, that that, that catch us. That's what a trap is. It grabs, it snaps your leg, it holds onto you, and you want to move forward, but you are stuck. And I pray, even over the last couple of weeks, that that some of the, some some stuckness maybe maybe got removed from you a little bit, as you started to realize that that you don't have to hold your complaint. In, uh, because that will that will keep you stuck. That you don't have to be lonely because that will keep you stuck. you don't have to do this on your own because that will keep you stuck. But there are there are different mental traps that we have, that we get stuck inside of these traps and we can't move forward. And so what I what, what I want to lay bare here is I just want to expose the hidden traps that have been laid in front of us. And guess what? He doesn't say that they're laid by our enemy. He doesn't say the devil went along and put a bunch of traps in my path. He doesn't say uh, an enemy came up, the Philistines came along and put a bunch of traps. No, no, he says people have hidden a snare in my path. Well, who could hide a snare in the path where you're about to walk? Only people who have gone before you. And this is where I feel like so many times we are held back by traps that were laid long before we were ever even born. And they're hidden because the people laying the traps were stuck in the same traps that they were laying. And they didn't wanna talk about it. And they stay hidden because it was pushed under the rug and they stay hidden because it wasn't acknowledged, and they say hidden because it wasn't confessed, and they stay hidden because it, because it's under the surface. It's not stuff that, that you talk about at Thanksgiving meal. It's not stuff that comes out at Christmas time when the family gets together. It's the, it's the stuff that was laid and then quickly covered over, believing that if we could just hide it, maybe it would go away, believing if we just would deny it, maybe it would go away, and even maybe we got a little bit religious about it, and we just said, well, you know, we, we just we just can't speak negatively. And so we hide it with positive framing and phraseology, and, and yet the trap remains. And this is why, I mean, if you, if you are a parent, man, you've got to deal with some of the traps that you're in. Because if you don't deal with the traps in your generation, your children will step into the same traps that you have stepped into, and David said, I'm recognizing that there was some stuff laid in my path before I ever even got to my path. That there was some stuff that my parents weren't able to deal with or didn't have the courage to deal with or the, or the know-how or whatever. But they just didn't deal with it. And now I am repeating it. And the, the perfect illustration is what's happening right here when, when David cuts the robe of Saul. David's men are telling the man, "Look, this is your opportunity. You got to go for this. You got to you got you, you got to kill Saul." And Saul says, "Well, I don't know that I'll kill him, but I'll cut the end of his, his garment, the hem of his garment, which by the way, is where the, the lady in the New Testament who had the issue of blood, she said, if I can just touch the hem of Jesus's garment, because the hem of a man's garment was really important. It wasn't like today where it's just simply the seam on the bottom of your clothes. It's the hem. So it, it was it was specially designed and sewn to reflect who you were, what family you were from, what tribe you were from, and even what your status or what your job was in the community. And so if it's a king's robe, it's an especially powerful hem. It really represented who you were as a person and where you stood in the community. And so that's why that's why that's why the lady wanted to touch the hem of Jesus's robe because that represented who he was. So she said, "If I, that's the that's the closest to him, that's the most intimate part of his clothing, that I can touch. Now, we don't have any, anything that, that relates to that nowadays, but, but back in those days in the Jewish culture, the hem represented who you were. And so when David took his sword, the sword that he had killed Goliath with, when he, he took that sword and cut the hem of his garment, he was basically saying, I'm taking away your kingship. I'm taking away your right to be king. And if people see me with the king's hem of the garment, now they're gonna start seeing me as the king. That's what he was doing. He was taking his kingdom away by taking off the hem of his garment. But what's interesting about this is that Saul did this exact same thing. When Saul was confronted by Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Samuel... Told him, man, you've sinned against God. Now God's raising up somebody else to take your place. And Saul said, oh, I'm really sorry. Please undo it, you know. Um, Please pray to God. Fix this, please. Samuel said, I can't do it. Samuel starts walking away. And the Bible says that Saul grabbed the hem of Samuel's garment and tore it off. Basically saying, look, you're not a real prophet. I don't think you really. Because that's what happens when people get stuck. Even if you come tell them the truth, they'll, they'll, they'll rip off the hem of your garment because it makes them feel better about themselves if maybe you're not a real, if maybe there's something wrong with you. And so he pulls off the hem of his garment, basically saying, you're not a real prophet in Israel. And Samuel turns around, he's real quick, and he said, man, just like you tore off the hem of my garment, God is tearing off the hem of your garment and giving it to somebody else. And this is the same thing that David's father mentor Did He's walking in the same path and that's why he feels condemned. That's why he feels convicted because he cuts off the hem of his garment and he realizes, man, I can't, I can't do God's will my way. I can't, I can't, I can't do it my way. I can't fight for what I want like Saul would fight for what he wanted. He says I, I, I can't do it that way. I have to submit to God. I have to allow God to to work this thing out. But yet within him there's this there's this thing that when people that when people challenge him and say David, this is what you got to do. He so badly wants to please the 400 guys in the cave with him that he's moved to do what he otherwise wouldn't do. And he's starting to step into that trap he recognizes. I mean, I mean from the very first time that we see David, you know, he's being he's being uh, discounted by his dad. He doesn't have the approval of his dad. And he comes to the kingdom, he beats Goliath, defeats a giant comes back, he's supposed to be able to marry the princess, and instead the king is jealous of him, so, they, so Saul says, well actually you can't marry the princess, what you can do, you can marry the princess only if you go kill a thousand Philistines, a thousand soldiers, and so David goes out and kills a thousand soldiers. This guy's not a wimp, this guy's not, this guy's not afraid, he's not, he's, not, he's not the heart boy who's just, you know, a lover, not a fighter. This is a, a strong guy, and yet he didn't even, we don't have any indication that he even really loved the girl. He wasn't doing it for the girl, he was doing it for Saul. Saul said, here's a hoop, and David jumped through it. Saul put another hoop in front of him, and David jumped through it. Why? Because he's looking for that approval from Saul. The people that you look for the approval from, those are the people that you will emulate. Those are the people that you will copy. Even if, even if you grow up saying, I'm never going to be like my dad, I'm never going to be like my dad. If, actually, probably the people you say you'll never be like, those are the people that you probably will be like. Because they occupy your mind far more than anybody else. And what occupies your mind starts informing your thoughts starts informing your actions, starts creating habits and develops life. And David finds himself in the same snare, doing the same thing that the guy who is against him, that the guy who is hunting him down, the guy he doesn't want to be like, the same thing that guy is doing. He's cutting. He's cutting the hem of that garment. He's stuck. Um, when we were at uh, a couple of weeks ago, I went to a conference up in uh, Gateway, Dallas. And by, by the way, some of what I'm, I'm teaching on is, is similar to what they deal with in a, in a freedom uh, ministry up in Dallas. And uh, it's a Kairos uh, event that we went to. And, um, and we're actually going to be bringing that here to City Chapel. We have a team that wants to bring that to City Chapel. And so um, in the new year, I'm going to preach a sermon series on freedom. We're going to have small groups around this concept of breaking free from some of these past chains and hurts and then we're going in early march we're going to have a kairos event which is a two-day intensive event um, where we'll be teaching deeper about this kinds of stuff but but when when we went to that one thing that really stuck out to me was this lady she was she was sharing about um, sort of this this idea that i'm talking to you about generational uh, traps these traps that have been laid in front of us and um, she read from uh, just, just a, a, a renowned piece of work from 1983, a lady by the name of Janet, I can't pronounce her last name, but um, she was a psychologist and she um, was married to an alcoholic and, and her parents were alcoholics and she had done a lot of study in the field of adult, adults who um, were children of alcoholics. Um, there 's an acronym for it i can 't remember what that is, but she, she she really started looking at that there were these real characteristics uh, that if you had if you grew up in an alcoholic home that there were certain things um, that were pretty uh, common between all of these people and it 's not just having grown up um, in an alcoholic home there may any home where there is a lot of um, uh, uh, trauma, so if there is some some great uh, illness in the parents um, some life threatening illness um, or if there is even uh, i think I, I think within it it even noted um, people from they call it strict religious mindsets. Um, what I would call scary church. Um, if you grew up in scary church, um, and, and, and some of you don't know, know anything about scary church because you don't know anything about church, but, uh, but some, some of us, man, uh, even here in our church, th- to have told me stories about scary church where, where somebody, they, 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 they watch somebody come to the front, they want to receive Jesus into their life, and the pastor told them he couldn't do it. You can't get saved today. You can't receive the free gift of salvation today. And why not? Well, because I don't believe your motives are right. Like that's scary church. When, when, you're, when you're supposed to be a witness, Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses. And instead we turn around and we make ourselves the judge and start telling people who can and can't get saved. I mean, it's, it's scary. You, anytime you, if you grew up in an environment where, you, where it wasn't safe, You weren't able to express yourself. You weren't able to express your negative emotions. You weren't able to express fear, anger, sadness. If there was no room for that, and sometimes, you know, it's not because of an evil addiction, sometimes it's because of an illness. Sometimes, or, or, there's a, or there's a sibling that has special needs, and so everything is focused on that particular, and you just weren't that particular sibling, you were over here on the side. And what happens is, uh, there's, there's these characteristics that are, that are very common to people who grow up in that environment, in an environment where it's not, you, it's not a safe place to share what's going on inside of here. And so as a child in your formative years, formative, you're being formed in those years, you, you learn and you tell yourself, I can't share what's going on in here. And the, that has some real effects on us as adults. And I think sometimes some of the snares we're stuck in, we're, we're, we're stuck not because of the devil, not because uh, somebody put a hex on us or, you know, we're under attack. Uh, no, I think sometimes it's just the fact that we are bent out of shape. We have been formed Poorly. We've been twisted in the way that we perceive the world, what we feel we can do. And that's why we don't go to God and pour out our complaints, because we learned early on that there is nobody that you can share that with. Because if you share that with somebody, they'll blow up with you at anger. They'll, they'll, they'll run away from you. They'll condemn you. It's a, it's a, if you grew up, grew up in a volatile environment, in, a, in an environment where you didn't know, what the, what the winds of temperament was any particular day or time. I mean, if you grew up in that kind of space, there, there's some, some particular characteristics that, that you probably share with people. And, and, I, and I think all of us can, can probably recognize some of these because none of us grew up in a perfect household. But these are 13 characteristics. Uh, if we can put them on, on the screen so that you can see them as well of children of alcoholics and other um, trauma. Number one... You're, you're usually guessing what normal behavior is. Do you ever find yourself saying, is this, is this normal to say, to, to think this? Is it? Is this what normal people do? <laughs> Number two, have difficulty following a project through from the beginning to the end. You may start things and not finish them. Number three, you lie when it would be just as easy to tell the truth. Number four, they judge themselves without mercy. Number five, they have difficulty having fun. Number six, they take themselves very seriously. Number seven, they have difficulty with intimate relationships. Number eight, overreact to changes over which they have no control. Number nine, constantly seek approval and affirmation. Number 10, feel that they are different from other people. Number 11, are either super responsible or super irresponsible. Because they believe it says something about themselves. Number 12, are extremely loyal even in the face of evidence that the loyalty is undeserved. Number 13, are impulsive, tend to lock themselves into a course of action without giving serious consideration to alternate behaviors or possible consequences. This impulsivity leads to confusion, self-loathing, loss of control over their environment, and in addition, they end up spending an excessive amount of energy cleaning up the mess. it's amazing, as, as she was reading that, she was, that lady was reading that list at Kairos, I thought, man, that's a lot of people I'm pastoring. And even I can see myself in some of those. And it's not because you're a bad person, it's not, it's, it, it's, it, it's because of the environment that you grew up in. It's because the snare was laid before you ever walked the path. It was down, and it was hidden, and you had no way of avoiding it. Scripture even talks about this. I think it's in, um, I think it's in Exodus uh, chapter 20, verse 5, where God says uh, he 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 he's telling people not to bow down and worship false gods, and he's telling them why. Yeah, there it is. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. This idea of visiting the iniquity, it doesn't mean that God judges you for stuff your parents did, because that would be unjust. He doesn't blame you. But to visit the iniquity, visiting means that this iniquity stays... In the family it's it's a it's a it's a visitor (laughs) it hangs around and it's transferred and God's trying to save his people from that because what he was supposed to happen is a family was supposed to be dedicated to God devoted to God raising children uh, under the fear of the Lord and in connection with God and then those children receive that blessing that gift and then they walk in that and instead what happens he says if you worship other gods if you bow down to other gods if you, if you allow sin to come into your family, into your home, into your life, into your mind, into your, into your body, into your actions, what happens is this, this iniquity gets transferred. It's passed down. The word iniquity is one of the words for sin that Scripture gives us. Um, it's one of the common words, um, but but it's, it's it's a little hard to understand sometimes. Really, a good way to do it is to contrast it with other words, like like the other word, the other most common word is trespass or transgression. Trust if you've read the the Lord's Prayer, it says, "Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against against us." Well, it's just the same as, as a sign, no trespassing, right? Don't don't to trespass is to cross a line or to go against the law of God. That's what a trespass is. That's what sin is, to go against God, to take what's rightfully his, to walk on his property, to take what's rightfully his, whether it's your body, your soul, your mind, or other people's, and to trespass on it. When you trespass against God, you really end up trespassing against other people as well. You end up hurting other people. So transgression or trespass is the kind of sin that is is—it's uh, outward. It's the thing you do. It's the action of sin. And it's, and it's breaking the laws of God and it's also hurting other people. But iniquity is different. Iniquity, uh, it, it, the actual word means to bend. So it has to do not with what you do, but it, it with, with what your natural bent is. That, that there is this, this shaping that goes on, as we call it the formative years, the formative, it's creating your form, that there's this bending that's going on. And this is why God says it's so dangerous to allow sin into your life, because the trap that you get stuck in, you will also teach your children to think this way. You will also teach your children to act this way. You will also teach your children. And so there will be this natural bend in, in us that comes from generations, not just our previous parents But their parents, their parents' parents, you can go back in generations and you can see where this bend, this bending toward anger or this bending toward addiction or this bending toward loss of self-control or this bending toward sexual sin or this bent toward, like it's there and it's continued and it's pervasive. And that's why God says it keeps going to third and even the fourth generations because because the trap that you don't get out of yourself, the trap that you stay in is the trap that you teach your children to walk walk in. They will also be stuck. And for many of us, it's resulted in these 13 things. It's resulted in these these areas of brokenness. And we we, we go to God because, because of it. Many of you are here in church because you felt the need for more than yourself. You said, God, I need your help. I need you to help me with this. And he has been, and he wants to continue to do that. But before you can do it, you need to have some revelation on why you are the way that you are. Which is why God brings Saul into the cave. David's companion said, Look what God's done, because obviously it's not a coincidence. It's pretty amazing. Out of all the caves in all of Engedi that you could find, you choose to squat in the one that David is in. It's a visual. It's not but 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 the, the David's men no this isn't a coincidence wait a minute this like come on this is God doing this God has brought Saul in here so that you can kill him But the danger of revenge is that you end up taking that piece from them and you keep it for yourself. David would have walked out if he would have killed Saul he would have walked out with Saul's robe not just in a physical sense although it would have been physical but also in a symbolic sense because he would have been Saul's son he would have taken the same anger the same bitterness the same jealousy that Saul had that was eating him up and David would have received that to himself and this is the problem with unforgiveness especially toward our parents, especially toward those who have gone before us. Because what it does is it says, is it says I'm going to take a piece of this with me. I'm gonna take the trap and I'm gonna plant it in my backyard. I'm gonna plant it in my family. I'm gonna stick it in my line. And it perpetuates the iniquity. And so David, David recognizes this is an op- God opportunity And he jumps at the first thought that he thought that it had was to get rid of this guy. But then he realizes, wait a minute, this is a God opportunity to draw me out of the cave. And to actually talk with the one person that I need to talk to. And in that talk, he says, I am not your enemy. He says, look, there's nothing in my hand. There's nothing in my hand that would suggest I'm against you. And this is the way that we have to come to reconciliation. We have to come with nothing in our hand against them. So part of my challenge to you today is to think about your past, to think about your family, to think about those closest to you, think about those who have hurt you, to think about those who have chased you into the cave or laid a snare for you. And then to forgive them and to talk to them and to say, look, there's nothing in my hand that's against you. I have nothing against you. You don't need to apologize. You don't need to make anything right because I, I have nothing against you. Well, how in the world, how can you do that? How can David have nothing against the guy who's been hunting him like a wild animal? who is supposed to be there for him, who is supposed to mentor him, his father, how can he just let it go? It's tricky, isn't it? (laughs) I get that question all the time. How do I I just let it go? Right, because it's not as easy as Disney makes it out, as uh, uh, Frozen tells us, you know, it's not as easy. because even then she's like, let it go, but let me build a fortress to hide myself in. Okay, that's letting it go. That's not letting it go. Just FYI, building walls to protect yourself from further getting hurt, that's not called letting it go. If you've let it go, you, you you can treat the person as if it never happened, if you've really let it go. So Disney doesn't really know a whole lot about that. just just so you know but how do you how do you stand before the Saul in your life the person who hurt you the person who wounded you and say I have nothing against you I only want to live at peace with you we don't have to be best buddies. We don't, you know, David didn't go back and live with Saul in the palace. You don't have to re-enter into the same relationship. That forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. Sometimes reconciliation takes time and takes some wisdom. But but how, how can you truly release the person or, or, the, or the scary church or the whatever it was? How can you truly release those people? How can you truly say, I, I have nothing against you? How do you get to that place? I think the key is David tells us here in Psalm uh, 142 he said he said when my spirit grows faint within me it is you who watch over my way it is you who watch over my way and then he says in the path where I walk people have laid a snare for me but but his his eyes are on God so the first key is to is to change where you're looking right and not, not 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 focusing on Saul but focusing on God the second key to understand that God is watching us and to submit to that. But also in Psalm 57, David gives us another key. He says, I, uh, he's crying out to God. He said, have mercy on me, God, have mercy on me for in you I take refuge. We've been talking about that. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings. That word wings is the same word for hem of the garment. In other words, you can choose to grab the hem from your forefathers, and perpetuate the iniquity, or you can get a new hymn. He says, I will take refuge under the shadow of your garment, under the shadow of your hymn, until the disaster has passed. I cry out to the God most high, to God, it is God who vindicates me. How can I forgive people? Because it's God who vindicates me. He sends from heaven and saves me. He rebukes those who hotly pursue me. He sends forth his love and his faithfulness. When you have received his love and his faithfulness, no apology is needed. No, I'm sorry is needed. No, I should have done better is needed. When you receive his love and his faithfulness, because it's so awesome. Colossians 1.22 tells us what God Thinks about us. When if you've come to Him and if you've accepted Him and if you've repented of your sins, then you, you are under a different robe. You're under a different hem. You don't have to hold on to a hem of your parents or a hem of your culture. You have a new hem. You have the hem of God. You can rest under what He says about you. And this is the the only way that I know how to truly forgive people, how to truly be confident in yourself is to find what God says about you and believe it. Colossians 1.22 says that I am blameless and free from accusation. Colossians 1.27, Christ himself is in me. Colossians 2.7, I'm firmly rooted in Christ and I'm even now being built up in him. I have been made complete in Christ, Colossians 2.10. I have been spiritually circumcised, cutting out my old regenerate nature. That's been removed. I've been buried, raised and made alive with Christ in Colossians 2, 12 and 13. I died with Christ and I've been raised up with Christ. My life is now hidden with Christ in God. Christ is now my life, Colossians 1, 1 through 4. I'm an expression of the life of Christ because he's in me. I'm chosen by God. Holy and dearly loved, Colossians 3:12, 1 Thessalonians 1:4. 1, I am a son of light and not a son of darkness. <laughs> I've been given a spirit of power, love, and self-discipline. I have been saved and set apart according to God's doing. Because I am sanctified, Hebrews 2.11, and am one with the sanctifier, he is not ashamed to call me brother. I am a holy partaker of a heavenly calling. In Hebrews 3.1, I have the right to come boldly before the throne of grace, to find mercy and grace in time of need, because I've been born again, 1 Peter 1.23. I am one of God's living stones being built up in Christ as a spiritual house. I am a member of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. I am an alien and a stranger in this world that I'm temporarily living in, and I'm an enemy of the devil, 1 Peter 2.11. I've been given exceedingly great and precious promises by God by which I am a partaker of his divine nature. I am forgiven on the account of Jesus. I am anointed by God. I am a child of God, and I will resemble Jesus when he returns. I am loved. I am accepted in the beloved. I am like Christ, 1 John 4, 10. I have life. I am born of God, the evil one. The devil cannot touch me because I have been redeemed, Revelation 5, 9. I have been healed isaiah 53 5. i am the salt of the earth i am the light of the world matthew 5:14. i am commissioned to make disciples i'm a child of god i have eternal life i have been given peace i am part of a true vine I am clean, I am Christ's friend. I am chosen and appointed by Christ to bear his fruit. I've been given the glory, the same glory that the Father gave the Son, the Son has given unto me. I've been justified, I've been made righteous, completely forgiven and made righteous by Jesus. Romans 5.1, I died with Christ and died to the power of sin's rule over my life. I am a slave of God and not a slave of sin. I am free from sin now. I am free forever from condemnation, Romans 8.1. I am a son of God. God is my father. I am joint heir with Jesus. I'm sharing in his inheritance. I am more than a conqueror through him who loved me. I have faith. I have been sanctified and called to holiness. I have been given grace. I've been placed into Jesus by God's doing. I've received the spirit of God in my life. I've been given the mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians 2.16. I am a temple, a dwelling place of God. His spirit and his life dwell in me. I am united to the Lord and in one spirit with him. I'm bought with a price. I'm not my own. I belong to God. I'm called. I'm a member of Christ's body. I am victorious through Jesus Christ. I have been established, anointed, and sealed by God in Christ, and I've been given The Holy Spirit as a guarantee of the inheritance that is to come. He is the foretaste of what I'm getting after this life. I am led by God in triumphal procession. I am to God the fragrance of Christ. I smell like Jesus. (laughs) I am to God what Jesus smells like among those who are saved and those who are perishing, 2 Corinthians 2.15. I am being changed into the likeness of Christ. Since I have died, I no longer live for myself. I live for Christ. I am a new creation. I am reconciled to God and I am a minister of reconciliation. I have been made righteous, I, I am given strength in exchange for my weakness, 2 Corinthians twelve ten. I have been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I'm currently living, I live by the grace of the one who gave himself for me. I'm a son of God and one in Christ, Galatians three twenty six and 28. I am seed of Abraham and an heir of his promise. I am a saint. Take that Catholics I am a saint I don't need somebody to tell me I'm I am a saint scripture Ephesians 1 verse 1 1st Corinthians 1 and 2 Philippians 1 and 1 Colossians 1 and 2 all say that I am a saint without without anybody voting on it I am an heir of God since I am a son of God I am a saint I was chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world I was predestined, I was predetermined by God to be adopted as his son. He picked me out. I've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. I have been redeemed and forgiven and I am a recipient of his lavish grace. I've been made alive with Christ. I've been raised up and sealed with Christ in heavenly places. I'm, seating with, I'm sitting with him in heavenly places. I am God's workmanship, his handiwork. I was born anew in Christ to do his work. I have direct access to God through the spirit, Ephesians 2.18. I'm a fellow citizen with the rest of God's family. I may approach God with boldness, freedom and confidence, Ephesians 3.12. I am righteous and holy, Ephesians 2.24. I am a citizen of heaven sealed in heaven right now. I am capable, I am called. I've been rescued from the domain of Satan's rule and transferred to the kingdom of Christ. I've been redeemed and forgiven of all of my sin. The debt that was against me has been canceled. Colossians 1:14. Could keep going, but you get the picture that there's this there's a, there's this identity that you can receive by faith. There's this family that you can step into by faith. There's this father that will adopt you by faith. Mm -hmm. And he lived a perfect life. He didn't step into any traps and he didn't leave any traps behind for those that follow him. Would you bow your head and close your eyes for just a minute, let's go to him in prayer. If you want to receive him, if you want to receive this gift of salvation, if you want to receive, I, nobody is ineligible. If you want to receive him, would you raise your hand and say, that's me. I, I want to receive him. I want to receive his love. I want to receive his grace. That's awesome. That's awesome. It's, it's a serious thing to step into this, this, this love because it would cost him so much. And so if you're, if you're really serious about receiving his love, this is is what I would say. I would say, God, forgive me of my sins. I've gone the wrong way, and today I turn to you. Thank you for what you did for me on the cross, and I receive your grace in my life. I want to be your child, take on your identity, and follow you for the rest of my life. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe you have received him in the past and God's calling you to a deeper level. God's calling you to get unstuck. <laughs> Father, we just say yes to you. Here in this cave, here in this hardship, here in this difficulty where we find ourselves again and again, this cycle that we find ourselves in, we choose to say yes to you. You know the key to our cave. (laughs) You know the exit strategy. And why don't you just right now, why don't you think about that person in your mind, your Saul, who chased you into the cave, who laid a trap for you maybe didn't even do it on purpose maybe they didn't even know what they were doing maybe they did and lord right now we choose to forgive that person we choose to release them of ever having to pay us back ever having to make it right ever having to say or do anything. We choose to release them. We don't just, we don't just release them and uh, never talk to them again either. <laughs> we choose to release them. And just as David talked to Saul, we might need to have a talk, a conversation. That let's them know that we have nothing against them. That we're here for them. We're here to be a blessing to them, not to harm them, not to cut them down behind their back, to complain about them to other people, but to truly bless them, to promote them, to make their lives better, and to restore whatever we have taken. Give them back the hem of their garment, give them back their identity, give them back Tempted to steal. And instead, Lord, we look to you to vindicate us. Send forth your love and your faithfulness to us. Wrap us in it in Jesus' name. Amen.